I'd like to thank Amazon Pharmacy for supporting my podcast. Amazon Pharmacy makes it easy to order your prescriptions and then to have them delivered straight to your front door. The best part is that Amazon Prime members can save on prescription medication when they're not using their insurance and still get two days free delivery. You can learn more at Amazon.com gold. Well, all of the U.S. stock market indexes managed to finish Friday with solid gains, although it wasn't enough to make up for losses earlier in the week. All of the U.S. stock indexes closed the week down. In fact, so far during the month of May, only the Dow Jones is in the black. All of the other indexes are in the red, so we are getting a lot of selling in May, although the sellers are not actually going away. What they're doing is buying value-oriented stocks. So they're selling their growth-oriented momentum names and they're loading up on value. But this also means that they're selling U.S. stocks and buying foreign stocks, which is why foreign markets are now outperforming the U.S. market, not only on the month, but on the year Because when it comes to value, even though there are some value stocks in the Dow, which is the reason the Dow is doing better than these other indexes, but relative to the values that you can find outside the United States, those stocks still look expensive. The U.S. leads the world in overpriced momentum stocks. But when it comes to real investment value, we're well behind what's available outside the United States. There is much better value in Asia, in Europe, in emerging markets than can be had in the U.S. And so that is also part of the rotation. Of course, the rotation is also into commodities and out of stocks. Oil had another strong week, gained on the week, adding to its nice gains on the month, closing at better than 65, $65.36 per barrel for West Texas oil. Gold continuing to shine, not that big a week for gold, managed to gain about 10 bucks. We were up about $17 or so on Friday, making up for some of the big losses that we had on Thursday, but still adding to its gains. Gold is now up about $70 per ounce during the month of May, and we are now trading solidly above 1800 We ended up closing the week just under 1844 per ounce. Dollar index getting slammed on Friday, but it did manage to eke out a small gain on the week because the dollar had a very strong day on Thursday. And I'll get into some of the economic data in a bit, that prompted the big dollar rally and gold sell-off on Thursday. But the dollar is still down solidly on the month. It's down about 1%. This is the dollar index so far in May. The big loser, though, on the week, on the month, is Bitcoin. And I talked about this on an earlier podcast, that the rotation out of growth into value is also happening with Bitcoin. So when it comes to supposed stores of value or safe haven assets, Bitcoin is always trying to compare itself to gold. Well, if you want to look at Bitcoin versus gold, clearly Bitcoin represents hype, momentum, growth, whereas gold represents stability and value. And we're seeing this transition now. Bitcoin is down now about 9,000 per coin, digital coin, on the month. Remember, we ended the month of April at about 58,000 per Bitcoin. As I'm recording this podcast, we're now at around 49,000 per podcast, although who knows where it's going to be when I finish recording or by the time anybody gets around to listening to it. It's quite volatile, but the direction now is clearly down. But Bitcoin down 15% approximately on the year. And I'm going to talk more about Bitcoin and my take on what's happening right now at the end of this podcast. So let's just put that on the back burner for now and let's focus on some of the economic data 
that came out during the week. And I want to start with the producer price numbers that came out on Thursday. Now, that release followed the much higher than expected CPI numbers that came out the day before. In fact, I recorded my last podcast on Wednesday afternoon following the release of what was a shocking CPI report. In fact, these hot inflation numbers pretty much triple what had been expected really got into the news. It prompted the Tucker Carlson people to give me a call to book an appearance later that evening. And so I was on the Tucker show. And if you didn't have a chance to see that live, it's already up on my YouTube channel. And, you know, the last time I was on Tucker Carlson, which was also the first time I was on Tucker Carlson, was also to discuss inflation. Now, I initially taped an interview on Tucker Carlson well over a year ago that dealt specifically with the Fed and so also inflation. And that particular interview, unfortunately, never actually made it on the air. But now that they've called me twice to talk about inflation, I have a feeling that I could end up being a regular guest on Tucker Carlson tonight. Because if they keep calling me every time there's bad inflation numbers, well, they're going to keep calling me because we're going to keep getting bad inflation numbers. In fact, they're going to keep getting worse and worse as the government and the Federal Reserve try to bury this and sweep it under the rug. Uh, You're going to have certain people trying to expose what the government is trying to hide. And I think Tucker Carlson will do a good job about this because he is one of the few people out there that actually has the guts to go up against the political establishment, uh, you know, the woke mob, and, and, and say a lot of things that other hosts just don't have the guts uh, to say. And he's willing to do that. And he says a lot of other good things. I don't agree with 100% of uh, Tucker's uh, takes on things, but I agree with most of the stuff. I think as far as the mainstream hosts that are out there, Tucker is the best. And I would certainly be happy to participate and help his audience really understand the nature of this problem. Hopefully, Tucker can be the new Glenn Beck for me. Because I remember around the 2008 financial crisis, I used to go on Glenn Beck's show quite a bit when he was on headline news before he moved over to Fox. By the time he ended up moving to Fox, he really stopped calling me and I really wasn't on the show. But I was a regular on the show prior to him moving to Fox. I think it would be great if I can now become a regular on Fox through Tucker Carlson. So keep on watching the show and hopefully you'll keep seeing more and more of me. I know we're going to keep getting worse inflation numbers, so there's a pretty high probability that I'll keep coming on. But meanwhile, let me get to the inflation data that came out on Thursday. We got the producer price index, and that index has been printing pretty high numbers all year. The expectation was that the number would decline substantially from the March number, which was up 1%, which was a very strong number, one percentage gain in a single month. So the consensus forecast was for the April gain to go down to 0.3. And in fact, if you look at the range of forecasts, the lowest number expected was a gain of 0.2, and the highest number was a gain of 0.5. We ended up getting 0.6, so double what had been forecast and higher than the highest range of expectations. Now, it didn't blow away the numbers as big as consumer prices, but still, it beat the estimates. And in fact, if you look at the producer price numbers that we've seen so far this year, we had a 1.3% rise in January, a 0.5% rise in February, a 1% rise in March, and now a 0.6% rise in April. So we're not going up every month like we're doing with consumer prices, but every month we are still printing very big numbers. So if you just assume that we repeat the last four months two more times this year so that the next eight months pretty much look like the first four months, we're going to be looking at 11% inflation. Because if you 
add up the first four months of this year, that's a 3.5% increase in producer prices. Well, 3.5% times 3 is 11% annualized. Now, again, this is inflation, at least as measured by rising prices on the producer level, not the consumer level. But obviously, if businesses, if producers are looking at higher prices for the stuff that they buy, well, they've got to pass it on to consumers in the price of the stuff they're selling. I mean, one person's cost is another person's price. All of this is being driven by inflation. Now, if you look at the year-over-year gain in producer prices, the prior month in March, we had a 4.2% year-over-year gain. The expectation was for an increase to 59 We did increase, but more than expected, up to 6.2%. That is the biggest year-over-year increase in producer prices going all the way back to October of 2010. Now, there isn't any data prior to October 2010 because apparently this is when this particular series began. So it's basically an all-time record, although I'm not really sure what they were doing to measure wholesale prices prior to October 2010. But the way they're doing it now started in October 2010, and this is the biggest increase that we've ever seen. Of course, the record is going to be broken maybe as soon as next month. Look at the other numbers, though, X food and energy. All these numbers were beats. In in March, we were up 0.7. The consensus was for an increase of 0.4. The highest estimate that anybody had was an increase of 0.5. The lowest was 0.2. Instead, we increased 0.7. Again, so back-to-back 0.7% gains ex-food and energy. Year-over-year ex-food and energy, same story. Last month, the year-over-year gain was 3.1. They were looking for a gain of 3.7. They got a gain, just a much bigger gain than what they expected, 4.1. Again, topping the high end of expectations, which was 3.8. Same story, year-over-year, if you take out food, energy, and trade services, they were looking for 0.4. Instead, we got 0.7, which was higher than the 0.6 of the previous month. And then that number year over year increased from up 3.1 to up 4.6. So these are big inflation numbers. And again, as soon as these big numbers came out, the dollar rallied and gold sold off, just like clockwork. Higher than expected inflation numbers. This means the dollar's going to go up. This means gold's going to go down. Why? Why do traders still think that the Fed is going to be able to successfully fight off inflation? I mean, again, I explained this on the last podcast, but what's happening is all of the people who are surprised by these inflation numbers, who did not expect inflation to be this bad, they didn't realize that it would be a problem, Well, now they expect the Fed to solve the problem. How does the Fed solve the problem? Well, it raises interest rates and sells uh, assets from its balance sheet, right? Sells treasuries, shrinks the money supply. The markets expect the Fed to fight inflation. Why? Well, because the Fed claims they're going to fight inflation. But the markets still don't understand that the Fed is just talking. The Fed has no ability or intention to actually fight inflation. But as long as the people who didn't expect inflation expect the Fed to fight it, they're probably going to keep on buying the dollar and selling gold. At some point, though, they're going to realize how ridiculous this is and hotter than expected inflation numbers are going to be bullish for gold and bearish for the dollar, which is exactly what they should be. Again, people are getting frustrated because they're not seeing a bigger gain in gold right away off of these numbers. Just be patient. You're going to see a huge increase in the price of gold and drop in the dollar, even as we continue to get worse than expected inflation numbers. In fact, we got worse than expected inflation numbers again on Friday. Only this time, the dollar didn't rise. It sold off. And this time, gold rallied because in addition to stronger news on inflation, we got weaker news across the board on the economy. So Friday's economic numbers 
We're all about stagflation. And again, what the markets still don't understand is when you get a combination of inflation and economic weakness, the Fed doesn't care if inflation gets worse because all it cares about is the weakening economy. But the irony is the Fed believes that the way you stimulate a weak economy is by creating inflation. Of course, the problem with this weak economy is it's going to be getting weaker because inflation is getting stronger. So if economic weakness is the result of strength and inflation and the Fed then goes for its only tool to fight a weak economy, which is to create inflation, you're actually increasing the problem that is weakening the economy. And you cannot strengthen the economy by making it weaker because making inflation stronger will make the economy weaker. In fact, all the data points that came out, and I'm going to go over these in a minute, but all this data shows is that the reason the data is getting weaker is because prices are getting higher. It's inflation that is weakening the economy. Well, if the Fed's only remedy for a weak economy involves creating more inflation, how can you create more of the very thing that is the reason that the economy is weak and expect it to turn around and get strong. It won't. But again, because the Fed only has a hammer, well, every problem looks like a nail. And so they're going to keep on bashing and bashing, even though they're not bashing a nail, they're bashing a window, and they're going to shatter it. The numbers that we got on Friday on inflation were the import-export prices. Listen to these numbers. So these are April numbers again. The price of imports which were originally reported to have risen by 1.2% in March. That was revised upward. We now know that prices in March for imports rose by 1.4% in one month, right? That is a huge jump for the price of imports. The consensus was that in April, prices would go up 06 Instead, they went up 07 but they did it from an even higher base. But still... in one month is a big increase in the price of the stuff that we're importing. In fact, year over year, this really puts it in perspective. As of April, we had year over year gain in import prices of 7%. But now that we got the April numbers, they were initially expecting the year over year gain to be 8.8. Instead, it's 10.6%. So Americans are paying 10.6% more for the goods they're importing in April 2021 than we were paying to import the same goods in April of 2020. But the numbers are actually worse when it comes to exports. In March, the price of our exports rose by 2.4%. That was revised up from what was originally reported as 2.1%. And during the month of April, prices rose another 0.8%. That means the year-over-year gain in the price of the goods that we're exporting is now up by 14.4%. That is huge. One-year increase. Now, at first glance, people might think, well, isn't that a good thing, right? Because we're getting more for what we're exporting, right? We're selling stuff, so don't we want to get higher prices for what we're selling? Well, of course, but why are we charging higher prices? Because it's costing us more to make the stuff, right? We'd rather have lower prices and maybe be more competitive and get a bigger market share. But the reason prices are surging for the stuff that we're selling abroad is because it's costing us more to make the stuff. But also, if it's costing us more to produce products that we're exporting, it stands to reason that it also is costing us more to produce the stuff that we're not exporting. So production costs in America are rising faster than production costs in the rest of the world because we've got a bigger inflation problem than the rest of the world. And also, the other thing is, even though the price of our imports is rising slower than the price of our exports, our trade deficit is still exploding because we import so much more than we export. So our import bill is rising faster than our export receipts, right? What we're billing our trading partners are to offset that. So it's still a negative because 
we're increasing a bigger number at 10.6% than the smaller number that we're increasing at 14.4%. But another cost that isn't even being factored into the import prices is the cost of actually importing the stuff. Shipping costs, because import prices simply measures the price of the imports, not the price of importing them. So if you look at what's happening to shipping costs, shipping costs are up like triple. Year over year, we have a 228% increase in the cost to ship goods to the United States from the rest of the world. So not only are we paying a lot more money for the stuff that we're buying, we're paying a lot more money to bring the stuff that we're buying over here so we can buy it. So the real cost of imports is rising much more than what these import prices are reflecting. Now, inflation also played a part, though, in all the other numbers that came out on Friday that were weaker than expected. Today's episode is sponsored by NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. NerdWallet's financial journalists use fact-based reporting for some much-needed clarity in the finance world, helping you make smarter decisions with your money. Get smarter about things like saving on travel, because spending less on airfare means more money for an extra night and maybe a fancier dinner, too. Boosting your credit score, since good credit is like a real-life cheat code. And saving for an emergency fund, because life is like a good movie. It loves a good plot twist. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you. Look at consumer sentiment in particular. In the month of April, the index stood at 88.3. And the consensus for May was that the number would rise to 90.3. Instead of rising, it plunged all the way down to 82.8%. Now, why are consumers so nervous? Why did their sentiment sour so quickly? And the reason consumers are worried is because the price of all the things that they're consuming is going way up. That is a big problem when you're a consumer and the cost of consumption is going up. In fact, if you look at expectations for inflation, Consumers now expect that prices are going to rise by 4.6% over the next year. Now, this is the highest consumers have ever expected inflation to be in more than a decade. Now, they're not even right because inflation is going to rise even more than 4.6%. So they're correct to be concerned. They're just not concerned enough. So they're actually going to be surprised by how much prices rise, but at least they're a lot closer than the Fed because the Fed still thinks that prices are going to rise by 2%. And they're saying that even if they rise a little bit more than 2% for a while, because that's kind of their goal, they still expect over time that inflation is going to stay at 2%. And more importantly, is the expectations. The Fed believes that inflation expectations are anchored at 2%. And they said that we want to make sure that inflation expectations remain anchored at 2%. Well, clearly, they ain't anchored at 2%. If consumers now expect inflation to be 4.6%, how can the Fed claim that it still believes that expectations are anchored to 2%? I mean, the anchor's gone. I mean, we're way adrift. I mean, we've more than double 2%, right, at 46 So if the Fed was really honest about its commitment to maintaining inflation expectations, to anchor those expectations to 2%, it would be raising interest rates right now. It would be fighting back on inflation right now to re-anchor these expectations because they're already at 4.6% and rising. But again, the reason the Fed is doing nothing is because it can't. It is all bark and no bite when it comes to inflation. But also, if you look within this consumer sentiment numbers, there also is the sentiment for home buyers, right? Because home buyers are consumers, right? They're consuming homes. And if you look at home buyer sentiment, it collapsed. It is now at the weakest it's been since 1983. Now, remember, in 1983, we were in a big recession, right? We were in the worst recession at that time since the Great Depression because, you know, interest rates went up to 20%. 
And so back then, mortgage interest rates were like, I don't know, 13, 14% if you wanted to get a 30-year fixed rate mortgage. So clearly, home buyers didn't have a lot of optimism when they were looking at mortgage interest rates that high. Well, here we are in 2021, mortgage interest rates are an all-time record low. Given that, we now have home buyers as pessimistic about their chances of buying a home as they were in 1983 when mortgage interest rates were at record highs. So why are Americans so worried about buying a home when mortgage interest rates are at record lows? It's because home prices are at record highs and going higher and higher. And so it doesn't even matter at this point that you have a record low interest rate because you have to borrow so much money to buy a house that even though you're financing it at rock bottom rights, the actual mortgage payment, because you're borrowing so much more to buy the home, is higher than people can afford. So home buyer sentiment is collapsing. Interestingly enough, home builder sentiment is still like at record highs. So the home builders don't get it. They're happy to build these homes because they see the prices going up. And this is, oh, this is great. I'm going to build a bunch of homes. But what they don't understand is their customers can't afford these high-priced homes that they're building. But, you know, a lot of times when you're in a bubble, right, you don't get it. The home builders are notorious for overbuilding at the peak and not at the bottom. And so they don't get it. They see the prices going up. They see the construction costs going way up, but they still are building anyway, and they're making a mistake. And soon, home builder sentiment is going to have to catch up with home buyer sentiment when these builders discover that their customers can't afford to buy their products. And then they are going to stop building. And what's going to happen when home builders stop building? Well, they're also going to stop employing all these construction workers, which has been one of the bright spots in the job market. You still have people on the job in construction. Well, these guys are going to lose their jobs because you can't build a home that people can actually afford to buy. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that the whole real estate market is going to crash because you're going to have a smaller supply of homes to buy and the homes that are already built are going to have a much greater value because of how expensive it would be to replace them because of all the raw material costs or the labor costs that have gone way up you can't build a new home that means the value of the homes that are already here is going to be greater but it also means of course that the cost of maintaining those homes is also going to be greater so it's going to be more expensive for homeowners Uh, to maintain their homes, and that's all part of this inflation process. But it is the accelerating price of homes that is now causing the weakness in the home buying market. So how is the Fed going to solve this problem by creating more inflation? If we end up getting a softer economy and we get fewer construction jobs, And the solution is, well, let's print more money. Well, now you're just going to create even more inflation and you're just rubbing salt in a wound. Amazon Pharmacy makes it easy to order prescriptions and then have them delivered straight to your door. The process is simple and saves you time and hassle. No more waiting in line at the pharmacy. And generally, the worst part about waiting online in the pharmacy is you're waiting online with other sick people. After all, that's why they're going to the pharmacy. So why go to the pharmacy and then get sick? You've already got something. Why catch something else? So the best way to get your prescriptions is to do it from home. And that's what Amazon Pharmacy lets you do. So the next time you need a prescription, just have your doctor's office send your prescription straight to Amazon Pharmacy, and then you'll receive it delivered right to your door. Amazon Pharmacy works with most insurance plans nationwide. And in fact, in these COVID days of delayed shipping, one of the only companies that still manages to deliver stuff on time is Amazon. Amazon Prime members, even me living in Puerto Rico, I get everything I order on time, one or two days, cost me nothing. And so why not take advantage of this situation especially when it comes to your pharmaceutical products. If there's anything you want to be able to buy without leaving your house, it's your pharmaceuticals. And again, the best part is that Amazon Prime members, 
If you're not using insurance, you can save on prescription medication and still get free two-day delivery. You know, a lot of times if you don't have insurance, you know, you're spending your own money, not the insurance company's money. And when it's your money on the line, you want to get the best deal possible. And that's reserved for Amazon Prime members. You can learn more at Amazon.com slash gold. That's Amazon, A-M-A-Z-O-N.com slash gold. The other data point that we got on Friday was industrial production. And again, here, everybody is looking for strong numbers because after all, everybody believes we've got this strong economy. Now, we did get a very strong industrial production number for March. It was originally reported as up 1.4 and it was revised to up 2.4, so a much bigger number. But instead of getting another big number in April of up 1.2, that number was just up 0.7. But if you look at manufacturing output, right? Just manufacturing, the numbers are much weaker. We did get a revision upward to the March number from 2.7 to 3.1, but the April number collapsed. They were looking for a gain of 1.8. Instead, we got a poultry gain of 0.4%. So a huge deceleration in manufacturing output during the month of April. In fact, capacity utilization, which did increase from the 74.4% in March, it was expected to get to 75.2. Instead, we only got to 74.9. Basically, all of the economic data points that came out on Friday evidence stagflation. In fact, even retail sales managed to disappoint. Now, we had a big number for March. And that number was actually revised even higher. The initial report was a surge in retail sales by 9.8%. That was upwardly revised to 10.7%. But the consensus was for another 1% rise in April. Instead, retail sales were flat, zero. But again, a big reason for the increase in retail sales is the increase in the prices that people are buying retail because retail sales doesn't net out inflation. So it doesn't mean consumers are buying more. It may mean that they're just paying more. Now, I think it's a combination of both. I think people are using their stimulus checks to buy more stuff, but because of all the money that's been printed to make sure the stimulus checks don't bounce, all the stuff that we're buying costs more money. So when you add both of those together, you get those big numbers. Yet despite all that, we had no net increase in retail sales in the month of April. And in fact, if you X out vehicles, retail sales, which were supposed to go up by 0.8, which follows a 9%, which was an upwardly revised uh, gain from the prior month, they actually fell by 0.8. We got the mirror image of what we expected. They expected a gain of 0.8, On retail sales, less automobiles. Instead, retail sales declined by 0.8. And if you X out gasoline and vehicles, instead of rising by 0.7, which was expected, we collapsed by 0.8, which means a lot of the retail sales had to do with buying cars and gasoline. And we know from the CPI report that the price of cars, particularly used cars, really shot up. We know the price of gas is going up. So we know a large part of the retail sales that we are getting is directly related to consumers paying more, not buying more. And looking at the control group, that was supposed to be a gain of 0.1 following the upwardly revised 7.5% gain in March. Instead, we declined by 1.5%. So again, weaker than expected retail sales, Weaker than expected consumer sentiment across the board. Weaker than expected industrial production. The only numbers that were stronger than expected were the prices that we're paying for our imports and the prices that we're charging for our exports. So weaker economic data, stronger inflation data. It's flashing stagflation. In fact, if you go to Google and just look for trends and then type in inflation, right? So you can see the increase in search activity where people are typing in inflation and then searching that as a search term. Look at that. What we have right now is the highest going back to 2004. And the reason it's 2004 is that's as far as the data goes, 
when you do the Google search. I don't know, you know what they're doing with the data from prior to 2004, but this is the highest since 2004. And if you look at this huge surge, we are right now at 100. Prior to that, the next highest level of inflation surges was actually in 2004. We had a spike up to 75, and then it came back down. In fact, if you look all the way from 2004 until the end of 2020, pretty much all the searches were pretty consistent at about 50. And now in the beginning of 2021 is where we shot up from 50 all the way up to 100. So something changed in 2021 that resulted in all these people all over the United States deciding independently that they were going to search inflation. Why are they doing that? Well, because they're worried about it. I mean, if it was transitory, would they care? No, they don't. It, they care because it doesn't seem like it's transitory. So the Federal Reserve is ignoring all the signs that inflation is here to stay and instead pretending that it's transitory. Well, we can't just pretend and, and play make-believe and hope the problem goes away because they tried that with the mortgage problem, even though it was obvious that subprime was the tip of a huge iceberg. The Fed kept saying, don't worry, it's contained because they were hoping that if they denied the problem, maybe it would go away. Well, they're doing the same thing again with inflation. They're telling all the people who are so worried about inflation, hey, don't worry about it because it's just transitory. Well, it's as transitory as subprime was contained. In fact, what's helping to drive all of this inflation is the Fed monetizing all of these government deficits. They just released the numbers for the first seven months of this fiscal year. And during this time period, the U.S. government collected about $2.1 trillion in taxes, yet spent $4.1 trillion, which means $2 trillion was borrowed and basically funded by the Federal Reserve. And these are the official numbers. The unofficial numbers are even worse. But what's really important here is if you compare the first seven months of this fiscal year to the first seven months of the previous fiscal year, the deficit now is much larger than it was then, except back then we were deep in the COVID recession. That period included the complete meltdown of the economy. Yet the government is spending even more money and running even bigger deficits now when the economy is supposedly in recovery than it was when it was still in recession, which again proves that there isn't a recovery at all. It's phony. The only reason the economy looks like it's recovering is because the Fed is printing all this money to artificially stimulate it. But the way you see the truth is to look at the increase in prices that the Fed is still denying exists. They don't want to acknowledge that inflation is not transitory because then they have to acknowledge that it's the recovery that's transitory because it doesn't actually exist and inflation is going to kill it. And when the next recession is caused by inflation, there is no way that the Fed can use inflation to cure a recession that's caused by inflation. I mean, the hair of the dog that bit you isn't going to work. It's just going to make the economy sicker. And in fact, another way the government is trying to encourage more reckless spending. I read a story that the U.S. government is now putting pressure on the banks, right? J.P. Morgan, Wells Fargo, U.S. Bank Corp., to get them to issue credit cards to people that have no credit history. See, normally they look at your FICO score and they want to give a credit card to people who have a history of borrowing money and then paying it back. You know, I remember I faced this same problem when I was a young kid. I remember I wanted to get a Visa or a MasterCard and they wouldn't give it to me because I didn't have any credit history. So I had to build up some credit history before I can get a Visa or MasterCard. So maybe I started with a store card. I got a card from a, a shopping store or maybe I got a gasoline card from a gas station. You know, they were willing to give me credit, a small amount. But then you build up a history, you borrow some money, you pay it back. And now the bank says, OK, this guy has shown a pattern and a history. He's been able to borrow money and then he's been able to pay it back. OK, let's give him a credit card. But now the U.S. government wants the banks to say, hey, forget about all that. Just give credit cards to people, even though there's absolutely no basis upon which to know whether or not they can handle uh, taking out loans and paying them back. 
Now, why are they trying to do this? Well, because they're trying to keep the spending going. And they know that one of the things stopping people from spending is they don't have the money. And so they want to make sure more people have access to credit, even the people who have no demonstrable ability to repay loans. Now, obviously, you know, these banks, they all want to make a profit, right? They would give anybody a credit card. Look at how high the rates are. I mean, sure, they want to give out as many credit cards as they can, but what they don't want is to lose money. They don't want losses. And so they are being prudent, at least to some degree, in who they're giving credit cards to. The government doesn't want any prudence. The government wants more recklessness. And since the government regulates all these banks, you know, supposedly to make them safer, they're encouraging them to take on risky loans that in a free market they wouldn't do. This is exactly what they did with the mortgage market when they were pushing these banks to make subprime loans to borrowers that they would normally deny credit to. Now, again, banks want to make loans because they want to make money. They just don't want to make bad loans because they don't want to lose money. But the government pressured them into knowingly making bad loans, which is ultimately something that they had to do to appease the government regulators. And now they're doing the same thing. And of course, it's always the free market that gets the blame, but the free market never would originate these loans. It's only government pressure that's causing these loans to come into existence. But of course, the other big problem about this is the government should not be encouraging and subsidizing consumer credit because we shouldn't even have consumer credit. Nobody should borrow to consume. You're supposed to borrow to produce. There is a big difference between a business borrowing money for productive purposes and a consumer borrowing money to buy a product or take a vacation or something like that. First of all, when you are buying to consume, right, the real thing is if you don't have the money to buy something, you don't buy it and you save your money until you save up enough money to make the purchase. But if you're operating a business and you need a piece of equipment, capital equipment that will improve your productivity, you need to get it right away. Because the sooner you can increase your productivity, the sooner you can start making new money. So you go out to a bank and you tell the banker, hey, if I had this new piece of equipment, I could be a lot more productive and I can make a lot more money and I'll use those extra profits to repay the money I borrow from you plus the interest. So that loan makes sense because A, the loan gets repaid. So the bank or the lenders are increasing their savings by the amount of interest they earn, but they also help a businessman become more productive, produce more products, which benefits society. You have more stuff to consume. Maybe prices come down. You get more job opportunities as labor is combined with that capital investment. So it's a win-win. Everybody wins when businesses borrow to make productive capital investments because those investments pay for themselves, right? The extra productivity associated with the new equipment is what enables the business to earn enough money to not only repay the principal, but the extra interest. Now take a look at a consumer. Let's say I'm a consumer and there's a new TV set that I want and it's $1,000 and I don't have $1,000. I have no money, but I want a new TV set. Well, the proper thing to do is, hey, let me save some money every month, maybe $100 a month. And after 10 months of savings, hey, I'll have the $1,000 and now I can afford to buy the TV. But you know what? In a real economy where you can put your money in the bank and earn interest, I may not have to save an entire 10 months because I'm going to get interest on my deposits. So maybe I only have to save nine months and then I can take the interest that I earned and use that to help buy the TV. But another thing happens in a free market when you're talking about consumer goods, prices go down. So maybe that TV set that I want to buy today for $1,000, you know, eight, nine months from now, the set will cost $900. So I don't have to save 1000 I only have to save 900 but maybe I only have to save 850 because I'm earning $50 worth of interest. So if I wait to buy the TV, the TV ends up cheaper, costs me less money. But if I go out and borrow the money to buy it right now, I pay more than $1,000 for that TV. Maybe I pay $1,100 or $1,200 because in addition to the $1,000 for the TV, I got to pay $100 or $200 in finance charges because I bought that TV. But here's the other problem. 
if I don't have $1,000 now to buy a TV, why am I going to have $1,200 later? I mean, I already don't have the money to buy the TV, yet I'm buying it anyway. The TV is not going to generate any income. I mean, I'm not like running a movie theater in my home. People aren't going to come over and watch my TV and then pay me, right? I'm not generating income from my TV. I'm just watching it myself. I'm just buying a better TV than the one I already have, even though I can't afford it. Well, if I couldn't afford to pay $1,000 for a TV, well, then it's even harder to pay $1,100 or $1,200. So people should not buy things that they can't afford on credit. And of course, people don't realize that credit is scarce. And so to the extent that people end up borrowing money to buy TVs, well, then a business can't borrow money to invest in equipment to make TVs. I mean, all these consumer loans that are being encouraged and incentivized by government is one of the reasons that our economy is not productive because we don't have the savings available to make capital investments because we're financing all this consumption. In fact, my father did a really good job of uh, highlighting this in his book, How an Economy Grows and Why It Doesn't. And in fact, I picked up on those themes in the book that I wrote, how an economy grows and why it crashes. In fact, Saturday Night Live one time, I've talked about this many times. And in fact, even Jeff Gunlock talked about it as well. And I don't know if this is one of the times where he, you know, he heard me talk about it or he just watches Saturday Night Live and has made the same comparison as me. I'm not saying that this time he got it from me, although he clearly has gotten other things from me. But they did a very funny skit at one point where they had a novel theory about how families should operate. And it was like, if you want to buy something, but you don't have the money, you just don't buy it. And it's pretty funny because the people just don't understand. Like, what do you mean? So if I want it and I don't have the money, can I just buy it anyway? It's like, no, no, no. You don't buy things that you can't afford. And it, like the concept was like so foreign to these Americans. Yet that's not how America used to be. Americans used to be very frugal. Americans used to save for things. In fact, it was very common for stores They had something called layaway. What was layaway? If you saw a product that you liked, but you didn't have enough money to buy it, you would give the merchant a little bit of money, you know, maybe on a weekly basis. And then eventually when he got enough money, then you would get your product. I mean, nobody does that anymore. Everybody is buying stuff on credit. And now the government is trying to make sure that even more people can squander money by buying stuff they can't afford, by forcing the banks to issue credit cards to people before they've even proven that they're able to handle the credit and repay their loans. The last economic number that I want to discuss, though, is the jobless claims. You know, we get these numbers on a weekly basis. We got them again on Thursday. We actually upwardly revised the prior month back above 500,000. It was at 498. It's back at 507. This week, it was supposed to come out at 475. We came out at 473,000 claims, so a little bit better than what had been forecast, but still a huge number. If we're supposed to be in this booming recovery, why do we still have so many people on a weekly basis filing unemployment claims? Now, yes, I get it that many of these claims are likely to be fake because unemployment is now so lucrative and it's even easier to file a false claim and people have greater incentives to file those false claims. So there's no doubt that a lot of these claims are false, but a lot of them are legitimate because the government has created a huge incentive for people not to be employed. And finally, we've got a major Wall Street investment bank coming to the same obvious conclusion, right? Something that the Biden administration and everybody in that administration is denying. Here, I'm reading from a report just published on Friday by Goldman Sachs chief economist, Jan Hatzis. I'm not sure of how to pronounce it. H-A-Z-T-Z-I-U-S is his last name, but he is the chief economist at Goldman Sachs. And here's what he writes, quote, The main reason for the current labor market tightness is that labor demand has recovered quickly, as indicated by the elevated labor differential and high share of firms with hard to fill positions, while many workers remain out of the labor force due to unusually generous unemployment insurance benefits. There it goes. Unusually generous unemployment benefits. Then he writes, and lingering virus-related impediments to working. But What I think this economist is overlooking that these other lingering impediments 
are in a large degree a direct function of the overly generous unemployment benefits because a lot of people who would be going to work are not and they're using other excuses to justify it. For example, I mentioned on the podcast before, people are afraid of getting COVID, right? So maybe this economist thinks that, well, some reasons that people aren't going to work is because they don't want to get sick, right? They're worried about contracting COVID. Well, you know what? If they couldn't rely on these overly generous unemployment benefits, they would overcome those fears and go to work anyway, because there's always a risk when you go to work, right? You could die in a traffic accident. Whenever you get behind the wheel, you know, you take a risk that you could be in a traffic accident. I mean, that's one of the most common ways that people die is in, you know, traffic accidents. So why did people brave the freeways and go to work, even though there's a risk that they could die? Well, because if they don't go to work, it's a certainty that they won't get paid. And then they risk being able to feed their family or shelter their family or clothe their family. So look, people are willing to assume these risks because they need a paycheck. Well, if the government tells you, hey, you're going to get the paycheck whether you go to work or not, so why assume the risk? The same thing with COVID. Look, if people knew that if they didn't go to work and risk getting COVID, they weren't going to get paid, they go to work. But because the government gives them the choice, they stay home. I think the same thing is true with childcare. I think a lot of people, even if their kids aren't in school, they would figure out how to get to work if they needed to feed their kids and, and, and pay the rent for their kids. So they would find ways. Maybe some of the parents would take turns staying home and all they would dump all the kids at one house or whatever would happen. But they would find a way. And in fact, one of the reasons that so many kids are at home is because so many school districts have given the teachers the choice. Hey, you don't have to go to work, stay home and we'll pay you anyway. So it's all this government interference making it so uh, generous and easy for people not to go to work that people aren't going to work. So all of this is a function of government and this whole welfare system that we're blowing up. But at least now you see a Goldman Sachs economist, you know, and these guys are typically pretty liberal, but now They're calling out the fact that it's the government that is responsible for the labor shortage and therefore uh, the the increase in wages in these low wage sectors that is helping to drive what is now obviously wages and prices. They like to call it wage price spiral, but the wage price spiral isn't what's causing inflation. It's inflation that's causing wages and prices to spiral higher. And inflation is caused by the Federal Reserve and by the U.S. government spending all the money and issuing all the debt that the Federal Reserve is monetizing. And in fact, one other way, too, that the government is screwing up the economy. And I, I, I read this article, it's a Wall Street Journal article, having to do with the effects of the Trump tariffs. And if you remember, I was very much against all the protectionist tariffs when they were enacted. And I took a lot of flack because a lot of the Trump supporters didn't like the fact that I was anti these tariffs. Well, I was anti these tariffs. Number one, I'm a free trade guy. I mean, I would be all fine with tariffs if they replaced the income tax and we went back to tariffs instead of an income tax, which was the trade-off we made when we passed the income tax to get rid of the tariffs. But I knew that they were not going to accomplish the objective. They weren't going to make America more competitive. They weren't going to reduce our trade deficit. And in fact, our trade deficits are bigger than ever. They were at record highs before COVID and they're even at bigger record highs after COVID. But the Wall Street Journal article pointed out that the Tariffs were an utter failure, that our trade deficit with China is bigger than ever. But on the goods that were subject to the tariff, there the trade deficit has gone down because Americans are importing fewer goods from China, at least the goods that are subject to the tariff. Why are Americans importing fewer goods? Because they don't want to pay the tariff. And again, that's another point that I made where I criticized the president because Trump kept saying the Chinese would pay the tariffs. The Chinese don't pay the tariffs. Americans pay the tariffs. They pay the tariffs when they buy the products. And so one thing Americans are doing is they're not buying as many of those Chinese products because of the tariff. Now, we're still buying some of those products and we're paying the tariff on those products. But on the products we're not buying, we're not paying the tariffs. But what we are doing is buying from other nations instead of buying from China. The nation that was most positively impacted 
by the tariffs was Vietnam. We've seen a huge increase in importing products from Vietnam that we used to import from China. Now, remember, Trump said that when Americans buy fewer Chinese products, we'll just make the products ourselves. Well, I said from the beginning, no way that's going to happen. We're not going to do it. We're just going to find the next cheapest producer and buy from them, which happened to be Vietnam. So now we're buying stuff for Vietnam, but we're paying more money from Vietnam than we were paying from China. Because the only reason we're not buying from China is because the tariffs increased the cost of buying Chinese goods to the point where now buying Vietnam goods is cheaper. Before the tariffs, we got a better deal buying from China, but after the tariffs, we have to pay more and buy from Vietnam. So Americans are losers because now we end up paying more money to import stuff from Vietnam than we used to pay to import stuff from China. Our trade deficit goes up because now we're paying more for our imports And it actually makes U.S. manufacturers less competitive because now our companies who used to be able to import stuff from China now have to pay more money to import the same stuff from Vietnam. That makes our manufacturing less efficient in the stuff that we're making. So the whole thing has backfired just like I said it would. And we have lost the trade war. Yet the tariffs are still there. Even though they're a complete failure, it's not like the Biden administration has gotten rid of them. We still have them because the government wants the money. They're a tax. And since the government is already collecting the tax, well, they don't want to cut taxes. So Biden wants to keep taxing the poor and the middle class with these tariffs. He doesn't want to take them away because the government wants the money. But of course, the real tax that's killing the middle class and the poor is the inflation tax. And that's the one that's really going to go up. And of course, obviously, tariffs also play in to the higher prices that Americans are paying in this inflation tax. And now finally, as I spoke, I want to finish up on Bitcoin. You know, when I started recording the podcast, Bitcoin was around 49,000. I'm now kind of finishing up the podcast and it's down to 47,500. Again, very volatile. It's already lost, you know, about 1,500 a coin just during the space of the hour where I've been recording my podcast. But what I wanted to talk about Bitcoin has to do with all of the obvious signs that Bitcoin is forming a massive top. In fact, if you look at the Bitcoin chart, you'll see the head and shoulders being formed now. And it is a long way down once we crash through this neckline. But one of the most interesting statistics on Bitcoin that I think should be very concerning for all these Bitcoin bugs out there, including my young son, uh, Spencer, is that look at the relative market share of Bitcoin versus all of the other cryptocurrencies. Bitcoin's market share is now down to about 40% of the entire market cap of all cryptos. It has been collapsing recently. In fact, earlier in the year, Bitcoin's market dominance was just under 70%. I don't know if we ever got to 70, but I'm seeing one day it was at 69.7. And so it was really going up And now it has crashed. And the last time this happened, when you saw Bitcoin's market share collapsing relative to all of the cryptocurrencies, was back in the huge move at the end of 2017, right? During that time period, Bitcoin was still going up. Remember, it went up to a then record high of 20,000. But during that bull market, all these other cryptocurrencies moved even faster. And so the entire market capitalization of crypto was moving up. But Bitcoin was moving up more slowly than all the other coins as more money was flooding into the crypto space. That is the opposite of what's happening right now. Bitcoin is losing its market share, not as it's going up, but as it's going down. And so what that tells me is that there is no real net new money coming into crypto, right? For all this talk about all the institutional money that is flooding into Bitcoin, it's not happening. Where are people getting money to buy Ethereum or to buy Dogecoin? They're getting it by selling their Bitcoin. So what's actually happening is the deck tears on the Titanic are simply being rearranged. The people who are in Bitcoin or in crypto are just deciding that Bitcoin is not the coin they want to own. And they're going for these other coins. You know, people have always talked about the fact that Bitcoin is scarce. And I keep pointing out, that, well, maybe it's scarce in that there's only 21 million Bitcoin, 
but it's not scarce in that there's so many other altcoins that you can choose from that are basically the same as Bitcoin. And so in that respect, there is an infinite supply of alternative cryptocurrencies that people can buy. And why are people now favoring alternatives? Well, because they're doing better, right? Relative to Bitcoin, there's a lot of other coins that are now doing better, right? Bitcoin is losing value relative to Ethereum. It's losing value relative to Dogecoin or a number of other coins. So now what's happening? People who own Bitcoin are now selling their Bitcoin to buy these other coins. So you're not having net inflows into the crypto space. You're just having people using Bitcoin as a source of funds to buy other crypto. And that's why you're seeing this. But to me, that's a good indicator of the beginning of the end. Because if Bitcoin really crashes, all this other garbage is going down too. And this is just the beginning. And you know, a lot of the crypto people, they've always hung their hat on the fact that Bitcoin was first, right? That's their argument. Hey, Bitcoin is always going to be the favorite coin because Bitcoin was the first one. Well, give me a single example in technology or in fashion or anything that's a trend where that's the case, where whatever is first is last, right? That whatever people do initially, well, they just, they continue indefinitely because that's not how things work. That's not how trends go. You know, I've made the comparison many times to Facebook. You know, initially Facebook, a lot of kids were using Facebook. It got started right with colleges, right? When it was the Facebook and, you know, it was with Harvard and Yale and these Ivy League schools. And so young people were doing it, but pretty soon, you know, young people are on Facebook and they notice, hey, my dad's on Facebook. My grandmother's on Facebook, right? Once you start seeing your parents and your grandparents that are doing the same thing that you're doing, well, that what you're doing isn't cool anymore. So people started to look at Instagram. And then when more people are doing Instagram, oh, I'll do TikTok, right? That's how fashions evolve. You know, I remember when I was a kid or not a kid, I was in my early 20s. I remember when I first started to wear sideburns and because I was going to clubs in LA and I noticed, hey, a lot of these, you know, really hit people, uh, the guys are wearing these long sideburns. So I grew my sideburns long because I wanted to be cool and hip too. And I remember, you know, my mom's friends, they were teasing me about my sideburns. I mean, they got, they thought were laughing that I had these long sideburns. Hey, come on. You know, what is this? The 1960s? Why are you wearing those sideburns? But I was wearing them, you know? But then I remember, I don't know how many years later, all my mom's friends that were making fun of me, they had long sideburns too. And by then I knew it was time to get rid of my sideburns because, you know, my parents' friends had sideburns, so they were no longer cool, right? The same thing happens, you know, restaurants, right? Restaurants are very trendy. And then, you know, the cool people hang out and pretty soon everybody wants to go there and then they're no longer cool. You remember that Yogi Berra quote, although I'm not sure he originated it, but he talked about, hey, that restaurant's so crowded, uh, nobody goes there anymore. It's too crowded, right, about this restaurant. Well, obviously, what do you mean nobody goes there anymore? If it's crowded, obviously people are going there. The idea is that nobody cool is going there because too many nerds are crowding up the restaurant. So the cool people had to find another restaurant. Well, that's what's going on with Bitcoin. Bitcoin is no longer cool. Everybody is buying it. Your grandma is buying it. All these big stodgy Wall Street banks are buying Bitcoin. So why buy Bitcoin? Buy something new, buy something cool. And that's what's going on. And then as these newer, cooler altcoins are starting to perform better than Bitcoin, Bitcoin is dead money. Bitcoin is a source of funds. What are you doing hodling your Bitcoin? You're missing out on all these huge gains over here, right? It's like in a casino, right? You're at a table and nobody is winning, right? The guy keeps rowing sevens. And then you see there's another table where everybody is screaming and applauding and it's like hot and everybody's making money. You're not going to stay at your cold table. No, you're going to go join the table where everybody's making money. And so people are leaving Bitcoin and they're going over to these other casinos or these other tables. But of course, what they don't realize is it doesn't matter where they are. They're going to crap out no matter what. Everybody's going to lose at the crypto casino. You know, and finally, when it comes to Bitcoin, the expression, when it rains, it pours, comes to mind. Because not only is Bitcoin now having to deal with enhanced scrutiny from the IRS now auditing more crypto exchanges, but the ransom that was paid by Colonial Pipeline to the hackers was paid in Bitcoin. So they were held hostage for cryptocurrency. And obviously, a lot of people are very upset having to wait in these long gas lines and the government is going to look 
for a culprit and somebody to blame, and they're going to try to do something about it. And a clear scapegoat is going to be Bitcoin, because after all, they'll be able to say, but for the ability to demand a ransom in Bitcoin, this crime never would have been committed. And so in order to prevent future types of crypto blackmail, they're going to use this as an excuse to more heavily regulate, maybe even ban Bitcoin, more likely heavy regulation that will simply make Bitcoin that much more expensive to actually use and transact with because the government wants to regulate everything. All they need is an excuse to do what they want to do anyway. The government clearly wants to regulate Bitcoin, especially if they view Bitcoin as a threat, which is exactly what the Bitcoin community wants it to be. Bitcoin is being marketed as an alternative to the dollar. It's going to dethrone the dollar and become the new reserve medium of exchange, unit of account. Clearly, the U.S. government doesn't want that to happen. So even if it was possible for Bitcoin to dethrone the dollar, why would the U.S. sit back and abdicate its throne? Clearly, it's not going to do that. It's going to defend itself against Bitcoin. And this latest example of Bitcoin being demanded as ransom and being paid as ransom is the perfect excuse for the government to do exactly what they want to do anyway. (music) 